from Genesis chapter 9. Genesis 9, verses 1 through 7. These readings are in connection with the uh, sixth commandment that we'll be focusing on this afternoon, which deals with the topic of murder. So we read Genesis 9, verses 1 through 7. And God blessed Noah and his sons and said to them, Be fruitful and multiply and fill the earth. The fear of you and the dread of you shall be upon every beast of the earth and upon every bird of the heavens, upon everything that creeps on the ground and all the fish of the sea. Into your hand they are delivered. Every moving thing that lives shall be food for you. And as I gave you the green plants, I give you everything. But you shall not eat flesh with its life, that is, its blood. And for your lifeblood, I will require a reckoning. From every beast, I will require it. And from man, from his fellow man, I will require a reckoning for the life of man. Whoever sheds the blood of man, by man shall his blood be shed. For God made man in his own image. And you, be fruitful and multiply. Increase greatly on the earth. And multiply in it. So far from Genesis 9, let's turn to the New Testament, to the Gospel of Matthew. Matthew chapter 5, we'll read verses 21 through 26. And then we'll also read verses 38 to 48. So first, Matthew 5, verse 21. You have heard that it was said to those of old, You shall not murder, and whoever murders will be liable to judgment. But I say to you that everyone who is angry with his brother will be liable to judgment. Whoever insults his brother will be liable to the council. And whoever says, You fool, will be liable to the hell of fire. So if you are offering your gift at the altar and there remember that your brother has something against you, leave your gift there before the altar and go. First be reconciled to your brother and then come and offer your gift. Come to terms quickly with your accuser while you are going with him to court, lest your accuser hand you over to the judge and the judge to the guard and you be put in prison. Truly I say to you, you will never get out until you have paid the last penny. Going forward then to verse 38. You have heard that it was said, an eye for an eye, and a tooth for a tooth. But I say to you, do not resist the one who is evil. But if anyone slaps you on the right cheek, turn to him the other also. And if anyone would sue you and take your tunic, let him have your cloak as well. And if anyone forces you to go one mile, go with him two miles. Give to the one who begs from you, and do not refuse the one who would borrow from you. You have heard that it was said, you shall love your neighbor and hate your enemy. But I say to you, love your enemies and pray for those who persecute you, so that you may be sons of your Father who is in heaven. 
For he makes his sun rise on the evil and on the good, and sends rain on the just and on the unjust. For if you love those who love you, what reward do you have? Do not even the tax collectors do the same? And if you greet only your brothers, what more are you doing than others? Do not even the Gentiles do the same? You therefore must be perfect, as your heavenly Father is perfect. So far, the word of God. There the question is, what does God require of us in the sixth commandment? I am not to dishonor, hate, injure, or kill my neighbor by thoughts, words, or gestures, and much less by deeds, whether personally or through another. Rather, I am to put away all desire of revenge. Moreover, I am not to harm or recklessly endanger myself. Therefore also the government bears the sword to prevent murder. But does this commandment speak only of killing? By forbidding murder, God teaches us that He hates the root of murder, such as envy, hatred, anger, and desire of revenge, and that He regards all these as murder. Is it enough then that we do not kill our neighbor in any such way? No, when God condemns envy, hatred, and anger, He commands us to love our neighbors, our neighbor as ourselves, to show patience, peace, gentleness, mercy, and friendliness toward Him, to protect Him from harm as much as we can, and to do good even to our enemies. So far, the Heidelberg Catechism. Brothers and sisters in our Lord Jesus Christ, as we've been studying the law of God for the last several weeks, a couple of important lessons have begun to stand out. I hope they have for you as well. And they stand out especially here in what we call the second table, the law, relating to uh, how, we, how we live in relationship with our fellow man. The first thing that hopefully has begun to stand out is that every commandment deals with a specific surface issue. But when we search the Word of God and and come to the Word of God with an open heart that's, that's ready and soft, willing to be taught, we discover that there's a lot more below the surface commandments. Uh, the commandments themselves, do not commit adultery, do not murder, etc., are the tip of the iceberg. Uh, now, the temptation for us when we begin to see this, we, we start to discover this, the temptation is to immediately close our hearts to what we find below the surface of the commandment. Because it's intimidating what we find there. Uh, it's like when you step into the kitchen after a, a hectic day and you find this giant mountain of dirty plates and pots and pans and silverware and everything else, and it's so much that you don't even know where to begin, and so you walk right back out of the kitchen and pretend you didn't see what you just saw. I trust some of you have had similar experiences. It's so it is, when we come to the Word of God and discover there uh, that there is much more work to do on our hearts than we perhaps initially thought. Uh, so the commandment today is, 
is do not murder. And we can come to this commandment with a heart that's soft and willing and ready to listen and discover that there's a lot more than just murder uh, that's being discussed here that God takes just as seriously. Or we can retreat back into that denial and, and pretend that Murder, the surface issue, is the real issue, the only issue here. And that anything else, if you're guilty of anything less than that, then it's not really a big deal in the eyes of God. And so we say, well, at least I haven't murdered anybody. So, so we denial back, or we retreat back into that denial. And, and the way that normally looks is, is we're willing to admit in a general, sort of generic sense that, yes, I'm a sinner and... Yes, I'm guilty of, of breaking this commandment, uh, but that's generic. You, you haven't actually confessed anything. Uh, and, as long, uh, and we're comfortable to do that as long as we don't look at the specifics that we have violated, that God calls out as sin and as murder. When we react that way, retreating back into that denial, as all of us are inclined to do, it's because we don't yet fully fathom the depth of God's grace in Christ. Christ's blood poured out on the cross is blood poured out for every murderer, including you and me. It covers the guilt of murder entirely. And, and it covers the guilt not only of those who break the surface commandment, those who actually murder someone, but it covers the guilt of those who in God's eyes are just as guilty, who have, who have murdered below the surface, at the heart level, in, in, the, in the less than obvious ways. All of it is still part of that same iceberg, so to speak. It's all the sin of murder, and God takes the whole thing very seriously. The sinful actions, as well as the sinful inclinations, the sinful thoughts, uh, the, the, the desires and the ways of thinking that give rise to the surface action of murder. God takes all of them seriously as murder. He knows our hearts also intimately better than we ourselves know them. Jeremiah 17, the human heart is deceitful above all things. We tell ourselves a certain story about our intentions, our motives. God knows the truth. God knows what we're capable of given the right opportunity. And the truth is far more ugly, far more serious than we are willing to believe. We need to recognize from Scripture God takes it with the utmost seriousness. So when we, when we balk at the, the sight of the full iceberg and retreat back into that denial that says that murder is, is the only real issue, what we forget is that Christ didn't just die for murderers who actually kill people, but Christ died for us as well. Murderers in the heart who would kill if we had the right opportunity. And when we, it, when we accept that Christ died also for us, then it suddenly opens our hearts and gives us the ability to face what's really there. When we recognize that we are sinners under God's grace, received by God, by His grace, and not to be cast out from Him, then we can start looking at the real issues without fear. And then we step out 
of that denial. Uh, We need to recognize that God's intention in, in sending Christ to this world was to deal with the whole iceberg, the whole sin, not just the root issue. And Christ did this by dying in order to cover the whole guilt for the whole sin of murder all the way down to the heart, to the wrong priorities, the wrong thinking, the wrong loves of the murderous, sinful heart. So the first lesson that we, we've begun to learn as we uh, look at the commandments is that whenever there's a surface issue such as murder, there's, there's much more below it. And the only way we'll ever be honest about that is by first understanding God's grace in Christ. Otherwise, we will always go back into denial. Uh, if, we, if we know the grace of Christ then we can deal, to go back to the dishes metaphor, then we can actually turn around and deal with that mountain of dishes in our hearts. Because we know that throughout that process, uh, which is going to take time, that process of looking at our hearts and dealing with the, the wrong things that are there, we can know that throughout that process, our Father still loves us. We belong to Him. We are His children. He will not cast us out. And that means we don't need to retreat into a denial about the things that he says are there. There's a second lesson that we've also hopefully begun to learn as we've been walking through the commandments. And it's this, that whenever there's a prohibition in the Ten Commandments, like do not murder, there is a corresponding positive command uh, that God has created us to do and now as his children expects us to do. When he says, do not murder, there is also something that he is saying, do. Uh, do this. And in a way, this, this makes that mountain of dirty dishes twice as high, uh, doesn't it? Uh, here too, we need to again come to a full appreciation of the deep grace of Christ. Not only are we guilty of, of many things that we have a hard time acknowledging we're guilty of, but we're also guilty of not doing many things that God expects us to do. And, and if we know that Christ's blood covers also those sins of omission, uh, the, the good that we ought to be doing and, and are not, then we can actually also bring that issue to the table to let our Father start working on those issues as well. Where do we fail to love as God made us to love and expects us to love, uh, we can let our Father start speaking to us about those as well. Uh, again, God is, not, God is uh, not only concerned with the surface prohibition, do not murder, but also the under-the-surface sins and the, the corresponding positive commands. Uh, we, we need to recognize we are not fine the way we are. That's the denial. You know, as long as I don't murder, I'm fine the way I am. We are not fine the way that we are. God is not okay with our condition. Though He loves us, though we're under grace, God expects us to change. Only then when we know and accept God's grace in Christ can we face the reality of how far we still have to go. Only when we know that we are God's dear, beloved Children, in spite of our sins, can our Father help us to face the mountain of sins and failures that are there in our lives? So all that by way of introduction. Uh, One way I could preach this commandment 
is to explore with you all of the many far-reaching texts of Scripture that show us how, how serious the condition really is within our hearts. How much is wrong uh, that needs to be uh, put back in place. How much we do wrong that God condemns and how much good we do that God requires and we don't. We could do this commandment that way. Exploring Scripture, showing all of our many, uh, many failures. And what this is, is essentially surveying the pile of dishes uh, to help us start seeing them. You know, look at this one and how the, the grime has really stuck to that one. And look at all these dirty spoons in the bottom of, of the sink. Some of you men are experiencing this for the first time this year as it's Mother's Day. So this, this should be a relevant metaphor. Uh, we could preach the commandment that way, surveying all the dirty dishes in our lives. Uh, but it does us, it's exhausting And it does us no good if we don't first understand the grace of Christ. If we're committed to our denial because we do not believe that we are under God's grace, then no amount of surveying the dishes will help us to step out of that denial. The only way we will make progress on this commandment or any other is by seeing our sin and dealing with it under the grace of Christ. We must first grasp the unconditional strength of the Father's love for us in Christ. And and coupled with that then, the Father's determination through the Spirit to work on the issues in our hearts. Uh, And and to give us both the will will and the, the effort of working. That's Philippians 2, verse 12 to 13. So we need to know that we are loved by God unconditionally, and that He is determined to wash these dishes with us, uh, to give us the desire and the strength, and I would say even even the joy to wash these dishes with Him. So the commandment is, you shall not murder. That's the the tip of our iceberg. Let's begin by reflecting on the, the basis or the foundation for this commandment, which is the sanctity of human life as made in the image of God. We read those verses from Genesis 9. The foundation for Genesis 9 is all the way back, of course, in Genesis 1, where it says God made man in His image, male and female. He created them in the image of God. He created him. And those verses in Genesis 9 pick up on that. And they say, whoever sheds the blood of man, by man shall his blood be shed, for God made man in his own image. So the reason why murder is fundamentally always wrong is because human beings are made in the image of God. Now what does that mean, made in the image of God? We see that in Genesis 1 and 2, and it's clear that the The image of God, whatever we're going to say this is, is what sets man and woman apart from all of the other animals. That's the contrast. God creates all these animals, and then it says, then God said, let us make man in our image. Uh, So God made all the animals according to their kinds, and God made man according to God's kind. Uh, There's the contrast between the animals that reproduce after their kind and man that is made in, in God's image. Now, the image of God does not mean, of course, that, that human beings physically look like God, because God is spirit. God is not a physical being. But it does mean that human beings are, in a profound way, children of God made 
to resemble Him. In Luke 3, you get the genealogy of the Lord Jesus uh, traced all the way back to Adam. And in the, conclu- the concluding verse of that genealogy says, uh, it speaks of the son of Enosh, the son of Seth, the son of Adam, the son of God. Adam is the son of God. Paul says the same thing in Acts 17. He's quoting some pagan poet uh, who stumbled upon the same truth as pagan poets often do. Uh, The truth that we are His children. That's in Acts 17. The difference then between man and animals is that man is endowed with with, with the special honor of being called the image of God or the offspring of God. Of God, and with that honor, so there's first the status, the honor, with that honor comes capacities like reason, creativity, justice, morality, self awareness, the ability to communicate with God, uh, the, the power of language that is distinct in the human race, uh, all these things that enable us to know God, to love Him, and to live with Him, and to reflect Him as children reflect. Their father. Now it's important to understand that these capacities, these abilities like reason, creativity, etc., uh, they are not by themselves what make us in God's image. It's not the abilities that, that produce the image or, or make human life sacred. They are consequences of that special dignity that God has given us of being called His offspring. That's important, an important distinction to make because uh, if a human being uh, lacks the, the ability to reason or to communicate or lacks self-awareness, that does not make that person any less a person made in the image of God. That's a special dignity that God confers and any abilities follow from it. Uh, Because of that honor then, that special dignity that God gives us, God regards murder, uh, this is in Genesis 9 again, with the the utmost seriousness, uh, such that he he puts a sacred cost on it. Again, Genesis 9 verse 6, Whoever sheds the blood of man, by man shall his blood be shed, for God made man in his own image. This is why the death penalty for murder is something that the church must always stand for and advocate for because human life is sacred to God. Uh, they owe, uh, it, when someone takes a human life, they owe a debt to God that cannot be paid except by giving their own life to God. The death penalty is not a political position or political opinion that, uh, you know, certain political opinions don't belong in the pulpit. The death penalty is a sacred commandment that God insists uh, that, is, that, that we continue to teach. It's a command of God, no matter what our, our feelings might be about it or whatever the laws of the land might be. Again, as uh, the, the preacher Vody Bauckham loves to say, I don't write the mail, I just deliver it. Uh, Paul teaches the same thing in in Romans 13. The government bears the sword to prevent murder. It's not just an Old Testament command. It's there in the New Testament as well. The government is authorized and commanded by God to put murderers to death. 
Now, of course, the death penalty must be used with uh, the utmost caution, only in cases when there is absolute certainty. Of course, we do not execute people that uh, we think maybe uh, are murderers, but those that we know to be murderers. So the government is right to hold itself to the highest uh, standard of evidence. It's easy to get things wrong, and we certainly acknowledge that that also uh, happens. This is why some people argue that it's, it's not worth having a death penalty because it's far more costly to go through with it than to simply put someone in, light, in prison for life. And yet the command is still there. He who sheds the blood of man, by man must his blood be shed. Uh, some would also say, you know, the justice system is too complicated to, to ensure 100% Certainty, it does happen that, that false accusations happen and, and, and people are wrongly put to death. Uh, of course, it's, it's really not any less a travesty to put someone in jail for life under a wrong accusation. Either way, we, we, are, we are dealt the hand that we are dealt. We must work with the evidence we have, but we must follow the command of God. This is not something the church should compromise on. Now, the reason I'm starting with that foundation for the Sixth Commandment uh, is, because, is because our goal as we meditate on this commandment is to learn to see human life and the value of human life through God's eyes, to understand how God sees and values our lives, uh, to understand not only that the taking of an innocent human life is wrong, as God's Word is very clear, but it's also profoundly ugly and vile. The goal is to recover a spiritual instinct then about human life that was lost in the fall into sin. And that's what we want to consider next then, uh, how, how that love that we were created with, that love for the image of God was lost in the fall into sin. Adam and Eve sin in Genesis chapter 3, and in the very next chapter, uh, Genesis 4, Cain murdered his brother Abel. What happened there in the space of that chapter? Well, what happened is that Adam and Eve's inbuilt love for God and honor for God was turned away in the fall into sin into a highest and most uh, highest and deepest and most loyal love for themselves as the new God. Uh, we, we saw this in the very beginning of our series in the Ten Commandments, uh, that sin, at its heart, sin is taking God off of His throne and putting ourselves there on God's throne. And the result of that is not only that our relationship with God is ruined, but our relationship with one another is also profoundly destroyed. Uh, we no longer treasure or value the image of God in others because we are, in our hearts and in our minds, the new God. We are now at the center of the universe such that we will either use people for our ends or destroy them if they get in our way. Every man and woman then puts themselves on the throne of God, demanding that every other man and woman worship them and serve their ends. If you don't believe me, look at something as simple as how we behave in traffic. How dare that person be in front of me? That's self 
worship, putting ourselves on the throne. And of course, it plays out in far uglier ways as we use and abuse people for our own ends, as if we are God. Well, we need to recognize that this is the radical change that happens in the human heart in the fall in sin, that we are born with that same fallen condition of putting ourselves on God's throne. Uh, to, fallen, to fallen human beings, uh, no human life is sacred anymore. If it serves our purpose, we love it. If it stands in our way, we will destroy it as far as we are able to do. And here's where we start to see then below the, the surface issue, the surface of the iceberg, down into the depths of the human heart. Even if we never once actually commit murder, so long as our hearts are turned from God, putting ourselves on His throne, the, the result will always be that there will be a murderous heart. A heart that acts according to the opportunities that it gets, a heart that acts in murder. There's a reason they say that power corrupts. See, power itself doesn't actually corrupt. Uh, it only enables the corruption from within to be able to come to the surface. Power gives opportunity for corruption to play out. And here's where we need to listen hard then to the truth that Scripture teaches us about our fallen hearts. We may not have, most of us don't have the opportunity to commit murder. But if we can get away with it, in the privacy of our cars or our homes, we readily degrade human life with our words, uh, often with our actions. We call people names that we might even be horrified uh, if, if other people heard them. We lash out in vile and unrighteous anger. We slam doors. We break things. Uh, we, we hurt others, sometimes out of, out of pure cruelty. We, we inflict pain on others with our words, uh, with our body language, and oftentimes for no other reason because we want them to feel the anger of our God, which is ourselves. They stood in my way. How dare they? Well, James teaches us the same in, in James chapter 4, uh, verse 1. He says, what causes quarrels and what causes fights among you? And I'm sure there's a whole chorus of people there in the church to say, I know what causes quarrels. He does. She does. It's her fault. It's his fault. James says, no, is it not this, that your passions are at war within you? You desire and you do not have, so you murder. You covet and cannot obtain, so you fight and quarrel. You do not have because you do not ask. You ask and do not receive because you ask wrongly to spend it on your passions. You see at the heart of that, that refusal to ask God. And, and when you ask, you ask for your own purposes. You see at the heart of that, that they have put themselves on God's throne. Scripture shows that the human heart, the fallen human heart, is a murderous heart. Now we read from the Lord Jesus' words in Matthew 5, and He shows us not only how the act of murder is ultimately rooted in the heart, but also how God also regards these, uh, you could say, lesser forms of murder as murder and therefore subject to judgment. He told His disciples, You have heard that it was said to those of old, You shall not murder, and whoever murders will be liable to judgment. But I say to you that everyone who is angry with his brother 
will be liable to judgment. Whoever insults his brother will be liable to the council. And whoever says you fool will be liable to the hell of fire. The word there that's translated uh, you fool it was a very commonly used word in that day. It's, it's very, uh, very equivalent to our modern day word idiot or, or stupid. Anyone then who says you idiot or that stupid person is liable to the hell of fire, according to the Lord Jesus. And here's where, here's where we need to be honest. And it's very hard to be honest because, again, we're seeing our sins piling up like those uh, dirty dishes. We see our condition looking worse and worse. And, and the temptation that becomes almost overwhelming to step back into denial, uh, it compels us with, with great pressure. But the Lord Jesus says that we, if we have those sins, are murderers. We are guilty of murder. It's there in our hearts. He says that, that, that the use of such words makes us liable to the fire of hell. How quickly we use words like, like idiot and, and stupid, in, whether it's in traffic, in politics, uh, perhaps even with respect to brothers and sisters within the church, or even with respect to our own spouses or our own children. Now, the Lord Jesus mentions uh, anger, and it's interesting, he just says, whoever's angry with his brother. Uh, And that's interesting because there is a place for righteous anger, and Jesus doesn't even mention it. Ephesians 4, verse 26 is written the same way, Excuse me, Ephesians 4 verse 26 tells us, um, be angry and do not sin. There's a a righteous place uh, for anger. He says, do not let the sun go down on your anger. And yet other places, uh, Colossians 3 being one of them, simply condemns anger as one of the works of darkness. And the reason is, how often is our anger ever truly righteous? See, we so quickly resort to that excuse, yeah, but there's righteous anger, isn't there? Yes, but your anger is not righteous. It's righteous anger is evidently so infrequent that the Lord Jesus can simply say, everyone who's angry with his brother will be liable to judgment. Uh, Likewise, James says, the anger of man does not produce the righteousness of God. Our catechism does the same thing, actually. It just lists anger as a root of murder, even though it is possible to be righteously anger, but the truth is so little of our anger is really righteous. And the little that is righteous, in its roots at least, often becomes unrighteous in the way that it's expressed. Once again, brothers and sisters, hear the gospel loud and clear. Christ laid down his life and was murdered on the cross, in order to pay the sins of murderers like you and me. People who have violated the image of God in our actions, in our words, in our thoughts, in our envy, in our hatred, in our desire for revenge. The only hope for murderers to escape the just wrath of God is in Christ. True repentance then begins in confessing our sins of murder, confessing them to God, and in this case, certainly also confessing the specifics 
of our sin to God. It's not enough to say, God, I'm a sinner. I've you know, probably broken the commandment, do not murder. God calls us to see how we have broken it and to confess that. Uh, confessing the specifics of our sin uh, as best as we can, as best as we can know, and also if we have spoken words to people's face or injured them in ways uh, that that were unrighteous, there too, true repentance means confessing it, going to them. As the Lord Jesus says, if your brother has something against you and you're going to present your gift at the altar, leave your gift there. Go and be reconciled to your brother. Uh, Deal with your accuser before you get to court, lest the judge uh, give you your just sentence. Uh, 1 John 1 verse 8, If we say we have no sin, we deceive ourselves, and the truth is not in us. If we confess our sins, He is faithful and just to forgive us our sins and to cleanse us from all unrighteousness. If we deny that we are guilty of the sin of murder, or if we deny that there's any specific ways that we're guilty of the sin of murder, we are, we are not only lying to ourselves, but we are making God out to be a liar as well. If we confess it, both to God and to those against whom we have sinned, if we still have that opportunity, then God is faithful and just to forgive us our sins and to cleanse us from that unrighteousness. The blood of Christ is able to cleanse you from all unrighteousness, even of the most vile kind. Don't retreat into that denial. That's the gospel hope for sinners like me, like you, whose sin extends far, far below the tip of the iceberg, whose sins are, to change my metaphors, truly piled up in the ugliest way there in the kitchen. Have the courage to face it in Christ, because in Christ, that sin is not yours any longer, and your Father will help you to deal with it, to change. That's the gospel hope for sinners like you and me. Deal with your sin in Christ. Confess it. Uh, Be prepared to see more of it than you previously thought was there. So that God, your Father, who loved you even while you were His enemy, uh, says Romans 5, and loves you even more securely now that Christ has died for you, so that He may come alongside you and within you to begin that transformation that only He can accomplish. When we truly know then the depth, of our, uh, the depth of God's grace in Christ and understand that He needed to die for me also, not just for murderers out there, but He died for me, a murderer. We know how real and how serious our sins are uh, and we recognize the self-worshipping, murderous heart that is there. Then we can begin to courageously examine all of the roots of that murder, that, uh, of also the sorts that are mentioned in, in our Lord's Day. We can begin to see envy for what it is, desire for revenge where it lies. Now, envy is, the, is listed as the first of, of the root sins in the catechism. And we might look at that and we might think that envy, you should really put envy under the uh, uh, Eighth Commandment, under stealing, uh, because uh, envy is, is the root of stealing, is it not? And yet the Catechism puts it here, and I believe rightly so. Uh, Envy is more than just desiring something that someone else has. It's also resenting the fact that God has given it to them. 
That's murder. It's not just wanting what they have. It's hating the fact that they have it. Uh, Envy was the root of the very first murder when Cain murdered Abel. He was envious of God's favor. Uh, Envy was the reason that the leaders of Israel crucified the Lord Jesus. Uh, And the more honestly we examine our hearts as God softens them and opens them to His work, uh, the more we recognize how pervasive and how destructive envy is, how quickly envy arises in our hearts uh, when we might not have recognized it there before and how easily we can despise, hate the image of God in somebody else. Uh, especially when God blesses them in ways that God has not blessed us. Again, brothers and sisters, as you see this, keep your eyes fixed on Christ, on the cross, uh, or you will all too quickly step back into that denial. Our Father who loves us calls us to see this because He doesn't want to leave us where we are. He wants us to change, and He promises us that He will work that change within us. It's the same with uh, desire for revenge that also lives so close to our hearts that if we're not daily putting that desire to death, it it does work itself to the surface. Uh, Desire for revenge is is a a twisted version of the innate sense of justice that God has has woven into us. God is, because we're made in the image of God, we do have an inborn desire for justice. Uh, when, When sin goes unpunished, Human nature is violated. There's something good uh, about that. But desire for revenge is a twisted version of this. And it's something we we very easily confuse as well. We say, I'm not desiring revenge. I just want to see justice done. Uh, The difference is that the desire that God has planted within us for, for true justice is fundamentally oriented towards God's justice and God's honor. And the desire for revenge that we have in ourselves is fundamentally oriented towards our own self-worship, which someone else has undermined. Our own desire to put ourselves on the throne of God has been offended, and now we need revenge, because we are God in our own self-made world. Well, because we've been redeemed by the blood of Christ, God calls us now to address these conditions in our hearts. And do understand, brothers and sisters, that, uh, that God sends His Spirit to equip us to genuinely face these sins and truly grow. You are not stuck where you are. It is possible to grow and change in all of these areas. That's the work of the Spirit. It's possible to put sin to death. That's why Scripture calls us to do it through the Spirit who lives within us. Because we've been reconciled to God in Christ, it's possible to learn also on the positive side of the commandment, to truly learn to love the image of God in others, to treasure it, to honor it, and to respect it as God has made us, uh, as God created us to do. Uh, we can learn to, to put to death the impulse of murder that exists within us. Uh, we are not doomed to be Cain for the rest of our lives. And, and, and it's not as if the gospel message is, you're Cain, you're a sinner Cain, but do your best to squelch that sin and keep it from coming to the surface. Through Christ, we are possible to no longer be Cain. 
This brings us then to the, the positive side of the commandment, which is also how we'll, we'll close. Because we have been bought with Christ's blood and reconciled to God our Father, who loves us, it is possible for us to love the image of God in others. And that's what God, God is calling us to do as we meditate on this commandment. Going back to the Lord's words in, in Matthew 5, He told His disciples, and also tells us, You have heard that it was said, you shall love your neighbor and hate your enemy. By the way, that's not anywhere in the Bible. That's something that was said by the religious leaders of that day. But I say to you, love your enemies and pray for those who persecute you so that you may be sons of your Father who is in heaven. What a truly profound command. God is good towards all who bear His image. If you are His children, you will learn to be good to all who bear His image. If, if through the blood of Christ you are now reconciled to God, you are a child of God, and He loves you as His child, then you may begin to do what you were made to do right from the very beginning, which is to love His image in others. Now, one distinctive mark that ought to be present in every Christian is there ought to be a deep, heartfelt respect and love for the image of God in every other human being. Uh, Whether they're Muslim, Hindu, Buddhist, homosexual, or on the other side, homophobic, or racist, or bigoted, they should still be respected as image bearers of God. There should be a profound love in the heart of every Christian for every image bearer of God simply because they bear the sacred image of our God and Father. Everyone who comes into contact with you should be able to recognize that you as a Christian have a deep respect for them as a human being and that you recognize them as as worthy of a sacred honor that you withhold from nobody. Everyone, including those with whom you disagree strongly uh, about many things, should always know that you nevertheless hold a deep respect for them as a fellow human being. Not because of their own worthiness, but because they bear the image of God that you also bear and that you hold as sacred. Uh, This begins, obviously, as, as every command begins in its application, this begins within the home, with those nearest to us. When God tells you, love your neighbor, start with your closest neighbor, the one who sleeps on the other side of your bed, or the ones who are down in the hall in the room next door. Start with your wife, your husband, your children. Do your children know that you respect them as image bearers of God, that you love the image of God within them? This is a very searching commandment, and and the applications uh, hopefully come uh, fairly naturally. Uh, I hope none of us come away thinking, well, I'm glad this is just a commandment for real murderers and not me. Uh, That's certainly not the message you are to take home. Uh, God would have you see where, where your heart still struggles with murder, that you would see it, that you would, by His Spirit, put it to death. And so... So just as this commandment is for every one of us, remember, so is God's grace in Christ. His blood is powerful to wash away the sins of every single 
one of us. Uh, You may be forgiven for the murder in your heart and begin to truly change, to love God from the heart in a way that spills over also into a love for every other human being. That's God's intention for us. Amen. Let's respond by singing from Psalm 51.